Thank you, Mr. Parker. All right, our passage today is going to be Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. On the Brown Pew Bibles in front of you, that's page 1069. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1 through 17. We could do the youth thing. When you're there, say there. All right. Uh, before we turn to our, uh, our, our passage, let us turn to our God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word for us. We thank you that you have given us the gospel, a true announcement. We thank you that your, uh, that your message goes forth by speech and not by sword. We thank you for your love and your power, and we ask that you would use this time of worship and praise to lead our hearts to a better understanding of you, of your purpose, of your plan, of your might, of your power to save. Father, we give you all the glory in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the king, uh, son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told Aram has allied itself with Ephraim, So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son Sha'ir Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field. Say to him, Be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of those two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and of the son of Remaliah. Aram, Ephraim, and Remaliah's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah. Let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabeel king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. This is the word of the Lord. Now, some of you are probably thinking that uh, I've been spending a little too much time with the youth and I don't realize what time of year it is. We've been singing a Christmas hymn. Uh, I'm reading a Christmas passage and it's August 1st and your jingle bells aren't jingling right now. Uh, But trust me, I do know the passages I picked, and I hope to show you by the end of today uh, that this passage isn't one that we should just bring out on Christmas Eve and then pack it away with the rest of our stockings and Christmas ornaments. Uh, And that was a lot of 
strange lands and kings' names and things like that. So before we get started, I kind of want to orient ourselves to the historical context of which our passage is found. The year is 735 BCE, and the once mighty kingdom of Israel is fractured. It's split into two. To the north is the kingdom of Israel. It contains 11 of the tribes. In our passage, it's also called Ephraim after one of the more prominent tribes. To the south is the small kingdom of Judah, the house of David, from which the Messiah is to come. Because of, because of infighting and because of idolatry and because of poor choices of, of political alliances, the kingdom's fractured and they have prophets constantly coming to them to call them to repentance. Both kingdoms are in tatters and both kingdoms are on the verge of imploding. To make things worse, a new threat looms on the horizon to the north. It's the kingdom of Assyria, under Assyria's king Tiglath-Pileser III, Assyria has been on this aggressive expansion campaign. And on their way down to their main rival, Egypt, is Syria, also in our passage called Aram, Israel, also called Ephraim, and then Judah. In an attempt to stand against the mighty Assyria, there's a coalition of nations that has formed, which include Syria and Israel. And they would like to have Judah join in, even if out of self-interest, because if, if Syria falls and Israel falls, then Judah's next. But their hopes are dashed when the previous king, King Jotham, denies their request. He says, I'm not going to stand with you against Assyria. And so in an attempt to force his hand, they begin invading some of the northern cities of Judah, and they do have some success. Then in the final reign of Jotham in his final years when he's sick and finally passes away, Ahaz, the king of our passage, comes to power. And the coalition thinks, this is our chance. Now we can get Judah to join. But for some reason, Ahaz, like his father, denies the request. And so Pekah, the king of Israel, attempts to uh, siege Jerusalem, the capital city of Judah, but he fails. And so he sends word to Rezin, the king of Syria, to come and help him take over Jerusalem so they can kill Ahaz, put up the son of Tabeel to be king, to be their puppet king, so that Judah would do their bidding. And that's where we find ourselves. Ahaz gets word that the armies of Syria are camping in Ephraim. They're about to undergo another siege. They've just withstood one, and they don't think they can withstand another. They're shaking in the wind like a tree. Now, I grew up in Northern California in the Redwood Mountains, and I can tell you it's amazing to see some trees wave in the wind and that, that they don't snap and fall to the ground more often than they do. We did have one, my parents will remember, we did have one uh, that collapsed, it fell, it broke uh, part of our porch and, and smashed one of our cars. And if it was like 10 or 15 more feet over, it would have landed on all of our bedrooms where we were all sleeping. It's amazing to see these trees sway. And that's Judah, that's Ahaz. He's scared, he's swaying in the wind. And I wonder if any of us, if we were told that we were about to be invaded by this massive army would be any braver. I really don't think that I would. It's at this point that God calls his prophet Isaiah to go to King Ahaz and to bring along his son, She'ir Jashub. She'ir Jashub means God will spare a remnant or a remnant will be saved. 
And we'll get to why that's important a little bit later. But he comes, he's told to come and find the king at the end of the aqueduct by the northern pool. You see, Jerusalem at this time doesn't have its own internal source of water. And what's the big thing you need when you're going to withstand a siege for a long time? Water. Lots of it. And so King Ahaz is inspecting the aqueduct to make sure they can have lots of water. He's making final preparations. And this is where Isaiah is to come, find the king, and give him God's message. Can you picture King Ahaz in the 11th hour making final preparations before what could be the last days of his kingdom and up walks a prophet of God? I'm sure he's probably thinking, yeah, I don't really want this this negative Nancy, this, this Debbie Downer to come and tell me all my efforts are futile. I know God's judged the kingdom and, and it doesn't really matter because why withstand? We're going to lose anyways. I, I kind of left something out about King Ahaz. King Ahaz is not a usual king. King Ahaz is the most, how do I put it nicely, most wicked, vile, idolatrous king that the Jewish monarchy had ever seen. We learn in 2 Kings 16 what type of king uh, King Ahaz was. King Ahaz, uh, when he was making alliances with all of these foreign nations, which he wasn't supposed to do as the king of Israel, when he was making all of these other alliances, he would pay them with gold from the temple of God. Uh, King Ahaz was the type of king who he went into the temple of God, he took the altar to God, moved it all the way around the back, and replaced it with a mock-up of an idol to, to pagan deities. And he told the priests, the Levites, who were the priests to God, that they were to sacrifice to these false gods. That's what type of king he was. He took the, the altar to the Lord to the back. He said, you're not to altar on it because it's to be my altar to God. I want God to be my own little genie in a bottle so I can control God. Ahaz was the kind of king who killed his sons, plural, as burnt offerings to pagan gods. That's the kind of king King Ahaz was. And this is the king that God chose to give the Emmanuel prophecy to? The, the great Emmanuel prophecy? He gave it to this king? I mean, Jotham was a righteous king, his father. His son is going to be the righteous king, Hezekiah. I mean, sh- any king besides King Ahaz would have been a much better choice. But in this, we actually see God's grace and God's plan. We see that God is so interested in showing that he's going to keep his promise, that the Messiah is going to come through the house of David, through the tribe of Judah, and that no sin, no person can get in the way of God's plan, that he comes to King Ahaz. And he says, my plan's going to succeed. I can just imagine uh, King Ahaz, the, the knot that begins to form in his stomach when he sees Isaiah walking up, and he's, and he's just thinking he's about to be condemned. And I would have loved to have seen his face when he actually sees the message that Isaiah brings him. Be calm, be careful, and don't be afraid. <coughs> God shows kindness and grace to Ahaz. Aren't you glad that the God we serve is the kind of God who goes to even someone as wicked as Ahaz and says, my plan is going to succeed. Be calm and be careful. From the very beginning of the Bible, God always asks people one question. 
It happened from when Eve was, was to decide who she trusted, the word of the Lord or the word of the devil. And throughout the scriptures, the question is always repeated to humanity, who are you going to trust today? And Isaiah is challenging Ahaz with that question. Ahaz, who are you going to trust today? And before Ahaz could even object with, but you don't know what I'm up against, Isaiah. Isaiah jumps in and he says, I know exactly what you're up against. These two kings, they've come together. They're gonna, they've already tried to invade you. They're going to invade you again. They're going to try to split up your kingdom and divide it among themselves and put up a, a Gentile on David's throne. Ahaz, I know exactly what you're up against. But if you look at what else Isaiah says, he says that Ahaz shouldn't be afraid of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. Th- these, aren't, these aren't blazing timbers. These are smoldering embers. These are things that people walk over on a dare. This is, th- you know, yeah, their smoke might make your clothes smell and they might sting your eyes a little bit, but it's nothing to be afraid of. Now, Isaiah doesn't come out and say it Exactly, but he will in chapter 8. He says, Do not call conspiracy everything that these people call conspiracy, and do not be afraid of what they're afraid of. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread, and he will be your sanctuary, your safe house, your place of refuge. What keeps you up on sleepless nights? What fears keep you worried? What job are you worried about getting or losing? What relationship are you worried is too far gone that no matter how hard you work, God could never reconcile it? How tight is the money in your bank account? Now, I'm not trying to minimize your fears or mine because I have some of the same ones. But my point is, is that what are we really afraid of? Are we, are we really afraid that somehow events have spiraled so far out of control that, that God can't even handle it? When we're afraid of our circumstances or the opinions of others or, or saving face for ourselves or, or we're worried that our relationship with God will somehow hurt a relationship with somebody else, we're, we're letting that object or that person or that thing function as a God for us. That's an idol. It, it's, it, it keeps us up at night. It determines our plans. It rules our thoughts. It saps of, of, of our joy. It takes away our trust from God because we're trusting in something else. God says, don't fear the embers, but to wholly trust in God and his plan and power. Who are you trusting in today? Isaiah is telling Ahaz that these two kings are not just extinguished matches and that God is a blazing inferno, but that he shouldn't, he shouldn't fear them. And, he, and the way he names them is interesting. He says, he says Rezin, the king, of, the king of Aram, and then, uh, you know, the son of Remaliah. It's the classic insult. It's the, it's the you know, uh, what's his face? <laughs> the son of Remaliah. He's a nothing. Ahaz, why would you fear these nothing kings? Why, why would you worry about these nothing kings? There's nothing to worry about. God has promised to, to protect the Davidic throne. God has promised that he's gonna spare your people. And these, these two kings are actually coming to try and overthrow God's promises. Are you kidding, Ahaz? It's a no-brainer. I mean, there, there's no way that these people are gonna overthrow God's promise. But he goes even further. Isaiah reminds Ahaz that he's not even up against two nations. He's up against two men, two kings. He, he says that 
he says that he's not really up against Syria or Aram because the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is Rezin, one guy. And he says he's not really up against Israel because the head of Israel is Samaria and the head of, Sir, Syria, uh, of, uh, of Samaria is, what's his face? They're nothings. Why would you trust that these two kings can do anything? These, these two nothing kings, they're, they're limited in power, limited in knowledge, limited in resource, and are about to be overthrown anyways, rather than trusting in the one who says, I know the plans I have for you. The one who is limitless in power, limitless in knowledge, the one who's mighty to save. Now, such trust in God doesn't always guarantee a favorable outcome, but it always will eradicate the dread that we have of those events, that somehow those events can thwart God's plan. And he doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just call them dying embers. He actually says that within the next 65 years, both of those kingdoms are going to be done and gone. And there's a little uh, Hebrew play on the, wor- on, on the 65. It could mean something like what we mean when we say, uh, you can't take it with you. He could, be, he could be saying something like, you got, you got to have a, an, an eternal perspective. You know, in 65 years, which is not a long period of time, they're going to be done and gone anyways. So if you don't trust in God, who says, if you don't stand firm in your faith, you won't stand at all. If you don't stand firm in your faith in, the, in what's going to last forever, and you trust in this, this thing that's a nothing, you won't stand at all. But what says 65 in Hebrew could also be six and five. Do we have any math majors? What's six and five? 11. So he narrows down 65 to 11, and we'll see even later that he narrows it down to just a couple of years, which in ancient military time is a newsflash. Nothing. So God is challenging Ahaz. Who are you going to believe? Ahaz, who are you trusting in today? And to prove that these nations will not fall to Ahaz, to prove it to, to this wicked king, God says that Ahaz can ask for a sign and he can ask for whatever sign he wants. It can be as high as heaven or it can be as low as death. Whatever he wants, God has said, I'll be obliged to keep. See, I don't, I don't, know, if, I don't know if we quite get this when we read it, how dramatic this actually is. This, this, is, this is like the Survivor and Fear Factor and The Bachelor and Young and the Restless, everything all put together. This is the God of the universe who created everything coming down in his prophet to one of the most wicked and vile kings and saying, you can have whatever you want. You can ask me for whatever sign you want and I'll give it to you. I'll do your bidding in this. And I'm sure even Isaiah was, was sitting on the edge of the seat thinking, oh my gosh, what is he going to ask for? What in the world is this wicked king going to dream up? But he doesn't. Instead of pulling the trigger on God's promise, he gives this pretend pious answer. He says, I will not put the Lord to the test. That's the modern equivalent of, I'll pray about it. <laughs> Some of you got really squeamish in your seats. It's, it's when we say as Christians, uh, I'll pray about it. But what we actually mean is, yeah, I don't really, I don't really care that much, but I don't, I don't want to look like I don't care about you because I like you, uh, but I, I don't really want to be involved, so I'm going to couch it in religious language so I can be on my, on my merry way. Right? Ahaz is, 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 is rejecting God's sign and trying to look religious. 
But why does he reject it? Well, it's simple. He wants God to do his bidding. Some of you are probably confused. Didn't you just say that God said that he would do his bidding and now you're saying he doesn't accept it because he wants God to do his bidding? That doesn't make any sense. Well, if we look at what God's sign actually was, God told Ahaz, be still and do nothing. Trust in me and in my plan and in my power and I'll save you. Even though Ahaz wants God to do his bidding, the sign was actually meant to prove that Ahaz couldn't do it on his own, that God really would be the real one in control. And we learn in 2 Kings that Ahaz actually already had other plans. He didn't want God and he didn't want his meddling prophet to be involved with what he's already decided to do. Rather than trusting in God, rather than, than, than joining these other two kingdoms, Rather than any other decision, he decides to do an end and around beyond uh, Israel, beyond Syria, and appeal to the big boy, Assyria. Rather than being obedient to God, or rather than being the puppet king of Israel and Syria, he says, I'll be the puppet king. If I'm going to be a puppet king, I might as well be a puppet king of, you know, the mega power in the region. He didn't want God to rescue him because he didn't want to give up his own plans. He had already sent gold to Tiglath-Pileser with a message. You know what his message was? I'm your servant. Ahaz had a chance to trust God for deliverance, but instead he trusted his worst enemy. He didn't want some trumped up evidence to show them that his plans that he made by his own power and by his own intelligence were going to fail because that would mean that he would actually have to show that he was an idolater, that he needed to repent that he needed to turn, that he needed to trust God, that he needed to trust something other than himself. And that would be embarrassing to Ahaz. So rather than ending up with egg on his face, rather than looking foolish, he opted to look religious. But his faithless heart was actually revealed by his actions anyways. He turns to his worst enemy. And I think that that's the foolishness of all of our sin, that rather than trusting in God, we trust in anything. John Wesley actually said, if a man will not believe God, he will believe anything. Why, he may even believe that a man could put himself in a quart bottle. And we do that all the time. Not try to put ourselves in quart bottles, but we trust in our spouses. We trust in our children, in our jobs, in our looks, in how smart we are, in our bank accounts. We trust in our ministry. We trust in our church to fulfill all our needs. How often has that worked out for you? But we still do it. Even though we're always let down. Even though our expectations will always go unmet. Because those things aren't supposed to be God to us. We look to other people and things that will never fully have our best interest at heart rather than the one person who always has our best interest at heart. Who are you trusting in today? I will not put the Lord to the test. But God wasn't having it. Isaiah actually calls out Ahaz on, on basically his terrible answer. Uh, he, he says, look, Ahaz, you can try my patience all you want. You can try the patience of, of these other kings. You can try the patience of your own people. But do you really think that you can try the patience of 
God any longer than you have with this, with this ooey-gooey fake pious answer? Seriously? But the amazing thing is that God gives him a sign anyways. And Isaiah prefaces the sign with the word behold. How many of you, when you read through the Bible and you see behold, you just kind of skip by it? Because we think it means, yeah, well, you know, look at it. Look, something's going to happen. But behold doesn't mean something, just look. It means wake up, pay attention. Something amazing is about to happen. Something that you're going to marvel at. In modern language, it means God's about to blow your friggin' mind. Okay, and God does something amazing. He gives this amazing sign. But before we see the sign, we have to see who it's actually given to. Um, It's not just to Ahaz. I sometimes wish our modern English translations were translated by, by Southerners, by good old boys. Because in, in California, where we speak proper English, we don't have a plural you. Southern English does. So does Hebrew, and so does Greek, what the Bible's written in. Th- when, he says, when he says, you tried the patience, or when the sign's for you, it's, it's y'all. It's, it's all y'all, listen up. This is, what I, this is what I'm saying. This is a promise to the tribe of Judah to the house of David. This is a promise to all the people whom God has promised to bring a redeemer through. And God says that if you're not going to ask for a sign that I'm going to protect you, then I'm going to give you a sign. But now it won't be a sign that Ahaz is going to be safe. Now the sign is going to be that what God has said will come true and that Ahaz is going to get what he wants rather than what he needs. He's going to get the king of Assyria. In Isaiah, the... uh, his children's names are always like living object lessons. And in our passage, there's two. The first one that we meet is Sha'ir Jashub, a remnant will return. And when Isaiah first comes to King Ahaz, it's a good promise. A remnant will return. Yes! But after Ahaz rejects the sign, it's now suddenly only a remnant will return. The nation will eventually fall because of Ahaz's foolishness. The people of Judah will eventually succumb to Assyria and will be carried off into exile because of Ahaz's foolishness. But God will keep for himself a remnant. God will save his people. So what does the second child, the promised Emmanuel, signify? Since we usually only read this passage on Christmas, and we only read it in connection to the virgin birth, we often miss the historical context that it's set. We're so concerned with whether the Hebrew word Alma actually means virgin or not. But we miss that the sign was actually to Ahaz and to the house of David. We focus so much on on what it means for us now, which we'll do in a minute, but we miss what it actually meant in its historical context. Now, there are several interpretations of who the child could be, and unless we want to be here till like, three in the afternoon. We're not really going to go through all of them. Uh, I'm just going to tell you that the take that I'm going to take, and you can talk to me afterwards, uh, is that the first fulfillment of the Emmanuel is Isaiah's own son. We see later in chapter eight that Isaiah goes to his wife, the prophetess. She bears a child, and the language about that child is almost identical to the language that we find of the Emmanuel child. It's said that before he knows how to say, my mother and my father, Israel and Syria will fall. In, in our passage, it says that before he knows how to choose the right and reject the good, or, or it can actually be translated before he knows how to taste sweetness or bitterness. 
All three of those things. How many of you have kids? How long in the lifespan does it take for a child to really like it when you give them a pinky of sugar? All of these go very quickly in the lifespan development of a child. And so God narrowed it down from 65 to 11 to two or three. And we see that's exactly what happens in history. Just three years after this prophecy, Syria falls to Assyria. Pekka, you know, what's his name, is assassinated. And his kingdom falls to Assyria. And now nothing is left between Assyria and Judah. And because of Ahaz's foolishness, he gets what he wanted. He gets the king he sent for. Rather than trusting of the king of universe, he gets the king of Assyria. And our passage describes him as, as a, a, a flock or a cloud or a giant covering of hornets, of bees, of wasps. And it says he infests the land, not just on, on the crops, but it says he even infests the cliffs the uninhabitable places. They're everywhere. Assyria is going to blanket the land. He says that the king of Assyria is like a river that breaks its banks. You can't control it. Ahaz is going to get the king of Assyria, but he won't be able to get rid of him. And within 10 years, Judah joins Israel and its people are carried off into captivity. But what of Emmanuel? Did I just ruin like everyone's Christmas sermon that they ever heard? I really hope not because I actually do believe that Jesus over 700 years later is the fulfillment of the Emmanuel prophecy. Now some of you might be a little confused. I thought you just said that uh, Isaiah's son was the sign. Now you're saying that Jesus, that doesn't, you know, what are you talking about? Well, what I said was that Isaiah's son was the sign. He's not the fulfillment of the prophecy of the sign. He's the sign of Emmanuel, but he's not Emmanuel. This is probably why Isaiah actually used the word Alma. In Hebrew, Betula almost always means virgin. Alma's a little more ambiguous. Alma can mean virgin, but Alma can also mean a woman of marriageable age. And so it equally applies to Isaiah's soon-to-be pregnant wife as it does to the unmarried Virgin Mary. It applies to both. And so we have Isaiah's son as the sign and Jesus as the fulfillment. We see that the Emmanuel is not just a sign, but it's also a prophecy. It's a prediction. When you're driving down the road and you see a warning sign, there's the sign itself, and then there's the actual thing that it's warning you to be careful of. There's the sign, and there's the fulfillment of the sign. Isaiah's own son would be a sign to Ahaz that God's promises would come true, that Assyria would come, that he would wipe out Syria and Israel. And now also that Judah would be carried off into exile, but that God would spare a remnant. But it also points to the true fulfillment. It points to the true Emmanuel. It points us to the one that can rightfully be said that his name doesn't just mean God with us, but that he actually is God with us. The one who can rightly be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, as the Emmanuel child is called later in chapter 9. God did not only promise that he would be with us, but he actually did come and keep that promise. God did dwell with us. 
So what does it mean for Jesus to be Emmanuel, to be God with us? Well, it may be easy for us to scoff at Ahaz, to say, well, yeah, of course he rejected the, the promise of God. I mean, the guy was a nut job. I mean, he killed his own kids for crying out loud. I don't kill my own kids. And we think that by distancing ourselves from Ahaz, we're somehow off the hook. And we don't have the same things riding in our lives, right? I mean, none of you inherited a, a failing kingdom since last Sunday that I don't know about, <laughs> right? But what we don't realize is that our need is actually more important than Ahaz's. What we don't realize is that our need is not less important, it's more important because we're not just trying to save a political kingdom, we're trying to save our very lives, our eternal souls. And it's something that Isaiah's own son could never help. It's something only God's son could help. What we don't realize is that we're not just the Ahaz in this story. We're the Peckins and the what's-his-name we're the Assyrias, we're the Syrias, the Israels, and the Judas. We all need God's love and grace. None of us deserve God's uh, protection. None of us deserve God's presence. <clears throat> but that's actually what he gave us, even though we don't deserve it. He gave us himself. And not just an illusion of himself for us to grovel before and to beg and to plead and somehow earn his forgiveness, which we can never do. But God came down from heaven, from all of his splendor, from all of his glory, from all of his beauty, where he's being worshipped eternally by legions of angels. And he came down, he took on our corruptible flesh, and he walked to the cross. Emmanuel didn't just come to dwell with us. Emmanuel came to die for us in our place so that we could dwell with him forever. That's why he dwelled with us, so we can dwell with him. He didn't just save us from political strivings, but he saved us from the bonds of fear, of sin, and of death because he, because he hates sin and he hates it enough to demand justice. He knows that wrongdoing needs to have justice served, but he also shows us that he loves us unendingly, unceasingly, unashamedly, unquestionably, he loves us. Even though our sinfulness might at times not be very important to us, might never be important to us. We might think it's a, you know, an, an old passe or a dirty word or an ugly word. The passage shows us a completely different reality, that sin is incredibly important to God, but that we're even more important to God that our sin needed payment, but, and that God could have said, you Ahazes are way too wicked for me to come to you. But instead, he spoke comfort to us. He said, be careful, keep calm, do not be afraid, for I am with you, and your sins are forgiven by the blood of Christ, God with us, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And God is with us today, here in worship. Paul tells us in, in 1 Corinthians 14 that when we worship God in truth, that even the unbeliever among us will have their heart laid bare before God and they'll cry out, surely God is among you. Surely Jesus is Emmanuel and they'll join us in worship. We don't just come to church on Sunday to, to do our pious duty, to give our pious answer, to mark off the attendance box, to be seen by the who's who of the community, to get that ooey gooey warm flush feeling. 
We come to join in fellowship and to meet the living God in our prayers, in our singing, in our confessions, in our tithes and offerings, in our fellowship, in our taking of the sacraments. We come to commune with the God who is there and who is not silent, as Schaefer used to say. We hear about Emmanuel nearly every Christmas from the beginning of Matthew's gospel, but we almost never hear about the end of Matthew's gospel. You see, Emmanuel is the bookends of the gospel. He starts by telling us that Jesus is the fulfillment of Emmanuel, that Jesus actually is God with us. But he ends in chapter 28 with the final words of Jesus. And surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. And God is with us today. It's not too late. Even in this, the 11th hour, even if you've spent your entire life denying God, rejecting God, trusting in your own plans, God still tells us to not be afraid, to trust in him, to not trust in whatever our own personal Assyrias might be. Where are you shifting your trust away from the God who is mighty to save? because you're worried about something that only appears to be secure. That if you saw it happening in anyone else's life, you would instantly know how foolish it was, you would instantly know how bad it was for that person, but because it's happening in your own life, you're blind to it, you're ignorant to it, you ignore it. The God who created the heavens and the earth, who holds all things in the palm of his hand, calls to you, be calm. Do not fear and know that I am with you even to the end of the age. Who will you trust in today? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who with, is with us. We thank you that you are a God of compassion, a God of love, a God of forgiveness, that even though we didn't deserve it, Lord, that you came down from glory and splendor to be among us so that we can dwell with you forever. We thank you that even our most vile sins are forgiven on the cross that we can come into your presence boldly as children come into the presence of their father. Father, we thank you that you are a good father, that we can trust you, that we can love you, and that you love us in return. We ask that you would give us the strength, the wisdom, and the insight to to call sin in our life sin, to see where our, our idols might be, and to turn and to trust you and your power and your prayer. Father, be with us as we go out from this place. In Jesus' name, amen.